heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Let's ask the Lord's help to understand. Father, we have sung, Show me thy ways, O Lord, and thy paths, teach thou me. We plead with you now that you would show us your ways. For the natural mind, apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit, cannot grasp or conceive of the riches of your inspired word. And so we ask this morning through the Holy Spirit that you would teach us, you would instruct our minds, that you would lead us in truth, and that you would be our teacher. We ask, Father, that as we think upon your word, that it would uh, be light unto us, and that it would change our minds and our thoughts, and sanctify us, and uh, mold us uh, image by image, degree by degree, in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us for his sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hope I don't fall backwards through the window here this morning. We're pressed tight. And you know how I like to move a little bit. So I feel like I'm in a straitjacket already as I begin this morning's message. As we come to our text this morning, I want to take a moment to piece together the flow of thought here as we continue on in Paul's defense of the divine origins of his gospel. You remember that in verse 10, Paul very uh, strenuously and vehemently rejects the fact that he's not seeking to please man, that he's not altering his gospel. Uh, He's not preaching one gospel at home among the Jews and another gospel among the Gentiles, an easy believism, an easy gospel of just believe in Jesus and that's all you have to do. Whereas if you go to uh, the Jewish circles where Paul would preach in, the charge was that he would change up his gospel, would not simply be uh, believe in Jesus Christ, but also be circumcised and keep the law. So he strenuously objects to that, saying, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants obey their masters. Servants follow the will and command of those who have called them. And I am free of this charge, Paul says. Now, turning to verse 11, the Apostle Paul goes on to defend the fact that his gospel is a divine origin and not of man. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not a man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you remember there, the Apostle Paul is defending the fact that nor it does not have a human origin, nor has he been taught it. Very important. It's not simply something that out of the brilliance and the uh, ponderous reflection of a very uh, elite group of thinkers could come up with this gospel, and then when they had come it up, that they would uh, very methodically and carefully, and in, according to uh, sound pedagogical philosophy, translate or transmit that message from uh, one recipient to the next. The Apostle Paul completely rejects that, that idea, and he defends the fact that his gospel is 100% 
from God. He says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And now to defend that thesis, the Apostle Paul now gives us three sets of facts which will uh, basically uh, unfold in this narrative beginning at verse 13 all the way to chapter 2, verse 14. But he gives us three sets of facts which defend the, the thesis that his gospel is not from men, but received from God. And the first set of facts has to do with uh, his former life or his pre-conversion days. And then the second set of facts has to do with his calling uh, to be an apostle. And then the third set of facts has to do with where he was after he received this call. And his missionary journeys and uh, the fact that he didn't go up to Jerusalem. And we'll have to go through that uh, fairly carefully as we begin uh, next week taking up verses 16 and 17 and then following. But today the very narrow thing that we want to focus on is Paul's pre-conversion experience and Paul's calling to be an apostle and even to be a Christian because in these two sets of facts the apostle Paul shows that it would be impossible for him to have received his gospel from anywhere else. Now we're not going to get into 16 and 17 but I want to show you just quickly why it would be an impossibility for the apostle Paul to have received any of his message from men. He's told us about his calling and his conversion to Christ in verse 15. The revelation of, of the Son to me, he says in verse 16. And then he says at the end, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You compare this a set of facts over against the book of Acts. And you know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul immediately, when he went into Arabia and then came back in Damascus, began to preach his gospel. And so the general thrust of this uh, argument is, is very simple and clear. The Apostle Paul is saying it's virtually impossible from a human perspective to believe that he could have so quickly been converted, called, and then actually taken up the call to preach the ministry and gone into the synagogues and wherever he went to proclaim the gospel, it would have been virtually impossible for him at any time in there to have stopped, gone up to Jerusalem and received this authoritative message from teachers in Jerusalem. There just wasn't the, the time. There wasn't the opportunity. He went immediately from pre-conversion days, from a persecutor of the church, to a preacher of the gospel, and he didn't stop anywhere. He just went immediately from from conversion to call to preacher. And so Paul is laying out a very watertight case for the fact that it would have been impossible for him to have received his gospel from any man. And of course, if he didn't receive it from any man, there's only one other alternative, and that's that he received his gospel directly from God. Now he defends that here, beginning with the preconversion the pre-conversion years. We see the Apostle Paul moves from a persecutor to a preacher, but he shows us how that happens. And he first of all calls attention to what he was doing before he came to Christ. Verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul here begins to refer to his pre-conversion days after his training under Gamaliel, a rabbi, he tells us that having heard of Christianity and this thing which he called the way, which was sort of a derisive term, uh, referring to Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ, he says with respect to that group that he violently persecuted it. It's very interesting how this emerges in the original. The English Standard Version here says that he persecuted the Church of God violently. 
that's a very strong literal translation. He says literally in the original, it says beyond measure. But the point of it is, in, in the original language, the intensity of his persecution is brought out by the placement of this word beyond measure. The text begins with, beyond measure I persecuted the church of God. You see, the accent is on the intensity and, and the zealousness with which he pursued this persecution of the church. Paul is laying an, a very strong and, and sharp accent on this to anybody who was reading through this in the original. You see, he says, this was my former manner of life. I hated the church. I hated these people called Christians. I did everything I could do to snuff out what he thought was a subversive, sectarian, ungodly, blaspheming movement. He says, I persecuted it violently, and I tried to destroy it. The intention was that through uh, this violent uh, dealing with the church, that in, in, in persecuting people, that it would actually snuff out the entire movement, either by force, by intimidation, or even if they had to go to the extreme measure of killing off everybody who claimed to be a disciple, Paul's ultimate aim and goal here was to completely snuff the church out of existence. Now, Paul gives in very... Uh, broad strokes, very uh, economic use of facts and details, the fact that he was intensely persecuting the church. But if you turn to the book of Acts, you see uh, the detailed intensity, really, of his persecution. If you go to Acts chapter 8, for instance, verse 3, the word of God says Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. You see, he was ravaging the church. He really sort of undersells, probably, just how intensely he was persecuting the church. But the, the idea here is that he would go into the homes of people, and he said he would drag them off. That is, drag or pull by force. That is, somebody's resisting. It's as if he, he grabs them away from the dinner table and just lays hold of them and rips them out of their house, their home, their security, their family, their, their people, and he drags them off kicking and screaming. He was ravaging the church. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says Paul was breathing out threats and murder. There's the verbal persecution of the church. That Paul was not only intimidating people by force, but by his words, threatening all kinds of, of terrible and horrendous things that he was going to do unto them so that people would be fearful. And they knew that it wasn't just simply an empty threat because they knew of his activities and his actions. In fact, they knew that the apostle Paul would absolutely stop at nothing. They knew that he would find them wherever they were in the land of Palestine. Paul showed no uh, indication that he would stop anywhere. He would stop at nothing to root this group out. So we find him, for instance, in chapter 9 on his way to Damascus to make good on these threats of murder against the church. Acts 26 verse 10 says again, Paul talking about the lengths he went to violently persecute the church, says when they were put to death, he voted in favor of it. In other words, when he would drag these people away from their homes and their families or wherever they were, he would bring them to the religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin, and there they would be tried. And if they were found guilty of being disciples of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin would make a vote and say that these people need to put to death. And the Apostle Paul says, not only did I drag them, not only did I breathe out murderous threats, but when it came time for me to, uh, to cast my vote in favor of them being executed for their faith in Jesus Christ, I was right there conceding to that and offering my vote. 
So you see here, in a number of different ways, the book of Acts draws out this violent, intense persecution, this stop-at-nothing, intense persecution of the church. And now, why did Paul do that? Why did Paul so intensely ravage the church of Jesus Christ? Well, Acts 26.9 gives us a window into that. Acts 26.9 says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name Jesus of Nazareth. See, it was an intellectual opposition to the Christian faith. I think it's very important to understand. At the root of Paul's opposition to Christianity was not a personality conflict. It was a moral and philosophical and theological conflict. The Apostle Paul was intellectually convinced that Christianity was a sham religion. That it was full of blasphemers. He says, I was convinced that I, I, I ought. It wasn't just that it was a belief that really never found its way into action. The Apostle Paul was compelled by his intellectual commitments to not simply be opposed to it verbally, but to do whatever it took as a religious leader in Judaism to snuff out the church. And there are two principal problems uh, that Paul had with Christianity. And the first one was that Christianity was gospel. You see, Paul perceived the differences between Judaism and Christianity. This is a very important point now, getting into his whole defense of the gospel. Remember now, the whole point of the Apostle Paul bringing in his pre-conversion days is to show you that in his pre-conversion days there was no opportunity for him to have received the gospel. Whatever he knew of the gospel, it's not clear entirely how much, it was clear that the Apostle Paul knew at least this, that Judaism on this side is about law, it's about self-righteousness, it's about works, it's about my obedience, it's about me securing my relationship with the Lord through my obedient commitment and devotion to the law of God. On the other hand, what he knew of Christianity was about grace. He knew that these things were in fundamental conflict. You see him tipping his hand in that direction, in verse 13, he says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism. Whenever you talk about my former life, you're talking about something that's in the past, which is a distinctly different kind of a thing than where you're at right now. You see, my life in Judaism, that Judaism there denotes the whole system of law uh, in contrast to uh, paganism and Gentile religion and so forth. It's a reference to the beliefs and the customs, circumcision, kosher foods, diets, clothing, Sabbath observing, that whole set of laws that Judaism represented and absolutely insisted that a man must keep in order to be rightly related to God. The Apostle Paul is saying here by this though that he was a devoted disciple of a system of law. So his opposition, the reason why he was so convinced that he ought to oppose the church is because he understood that this was not some sort of a, a subsidiary sect of Judaism, but he understood that the Christian church was something antithetical to Judaism. Now the reason why, of course, the Apostle Paul rejected intellectually the Christian church and tried to savagely persecute is because it preached a crucified Savior. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Apostle Paul said that uh, Jesus Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, he indicates that back in Acts 26.9, he's talking about, he believed, he was convinced intellectually that he ought to oppose the name Jesus of Nazareth. Now, 
when you refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, in contrast to all the different times the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, refers to Jesus as Lord, you realize that the Apostle Paul is giving us a window into his pre-conversion thinking. That's all he thought about Jesus. He, Jesus was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man who had an address from Nazareth. He was a normal Joe who, who went around the countryside, preaching his own message, gathering together a, a group of devoted followers who basically composed this sect called Christianity. And then he got himself killed. That's all he was. He was just sort of a, a rabble-rouser, a subversive guy, a, a revolutionary the end of the day, who just got himself killed. There's no way in, in a Jewish understanding that the Messiah could have been crucified. It was a stumbling block because the law said, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And when Jesus heard of the fact that this rabble-rousing revolutionary from northern Palestine had got himself killed, he says, good, that's just what he deserved. Cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in all the things written in the book of the law of doom. It's very obvious that this man was not favored of God. He was not the Messiah. No matter what he did to him, this man was deserving of death. And if he was deserving of death, there's no way he could have been a Messiah. And so then as one who was appointed to be a leader, a religious leader in Palestine, the Apostle Paul had to, on his own Jewish understanding of how the world works, he had to persecute the church. So, it's very clear as Paul lays this out, there was no time or instance in his pre-conversion experience that he could have received his gospel from man. Now he turns from that portion of his pre-conversion experience, now verse 14, to his education. I don't want to say very much here, just point out a few things. One of them is very important, however. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He says he was advancing. Now he was making moral and spiritual progress in Judaism, in the law, in the instruction received from the rabbis. In fact, he was going way ahead of everybody else. He says, I was advancing way beyond many of my own age among my people. Why? Because he was zealous for the law. You, you, re you, you read Paul's autobiographical comments in a number of places in the New Testament. And almost every single reference, when he refers to his pre-conversion years, you will find him using the word zeal. Philippians 3, 4, uh, a number of different places in the New Testament he refers to the pre-conversion experience. And over and over again, this is what he's referring to, his zeal. He had this, this deep, heartfelt commitment to Judaism. And he longed to fulfill that law. He longed to see others fulfilling that law. But notice particularly what it was that he was committed to. Verse 14, it says, For the traditions of my fathers. That is the same thing as the tradition of the elders, which is referred to in a number of places in the gospel. It is the 613 oral statutes of the law. It was a whole series of applications of the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai. And it was oral. It was passed on generation to generation. We don't really know when it was that this oral tradition began to be composed. But many within Judaism of that day regarded that oral tradition to be traced all the way back to Mount Sinai, even to Moses. And now this was the unwritten law that Moses gave. Moses gave the written law in the form of the commandments. But then Moses passed on to a set of elite thinkers a whole series of oral commandments which helped us learn how to apply the objective written law. But 
wherever it was that these came from, these were regarded as just as much authority as the Word of God. And you remember that Jesus, when he was interacting from time to time with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that the subject of this law would come up, or the tradition of the elders. For instance, Matthew 15, the Pharisees come to him, and they see his disciples eating without washing their hands. And the Pharisees say, why is it that your disciples don't keep the law? Why is it they don't wash their hands before they eat? Jesus, after arguing them, summarizes his point of view in Matthew 15, 7. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now there's two very important things in that summary that Jesus gives of the tradition of the elders. Number one, he says that this is purely man-made. The entire system of oral law, no matter who you received it from, from no matter how much religious authority they had, whatever depths of learning, whatever degree of piety they demonstrated in their life, at the end of the day, Jesus says this whole set of oral commandments is nothing more than man-made. And second of all, it's just law. There was no gospel in it. It says commandments of men. But what does that do? But that illustrates for us what is at the heart of the Apostle Paul's worldview. Law. This is just the way in which the Apostle Paul looked at the world. There was a God, the Lord God Almighty, who was a law-giving God. And the only way to be reconciled unto Him, the only way to have a relationship with Him, the only way to have an experience of religion, and to be considered a devout follower of this Lord God Almighty, was to obey His commandments. That was it. The whole system was a system of law. And so, at the heart of Paul's zeal was a law, and a man-made law, even at that. So Paul here now, addressing the Galatians, is saying to them, you have heard. You have heard. This is not new. It indicates for us that the Apostle Paul, when he was among these Galatian churches, was he told them about his life. He, he told them about his religious commitments. He told them his persecution of the church. He told them of his zeal for, for the traditions of men. He told them that his whole worldview was a law-centered worldview. A works-righteousness worldview. An absorption with the law. So I'm just reminding you of what you were told. I mean, how could it be that the charge could stick against me that I had somehow received the gospel which I am now preaching from a man when my whole life up to the point of my conversion was immersed and absorbed in and fully focused on and devoted to law. It's not possible that he could have received his gospel from Jerusalem because his whole experience with the people in Jerusalem was a law experience. There was no gospel in his experience with the people in Jerusalem. But in, in this defense, though, the Apostle Paul brings out something very, very important that will be something we address over and over and over and over again in our examination of the book of Acts. And that is that there is a fundamental, categorical antithesis between law and gospel. These are two 
distinct, categorically separate entities. You have law, and then you have gospel. And you have nothing in between. There is no third category of gospel. There just is not. You either subscribe to the theory that you come to know God based upon obedience, radical, heartfelt, zealous, 100% obedience to His commands, or you have the theory over here that you come to know God through Jesus Christ, by grace, by faith, and that's it. There's nothing in between. And the sad fact is that there are so many Christians today who cannot seem to get this clear in their mind. If you were to survey most of the Christians that you run into, anywhere you go, I think almost all of them would find themselves to be disciples of gospel. It's amazing how they'll sing Amazing Grace. Oh, and they just marvel in, in, in awe. And they have grasped something fundamentally correct when they sing that song and, and they find themselves overjoyed with it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, people sing that and, and full of the deepest Heartfelt joy. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And it is amazing. It is amazing that God would, would, would save people who are blind. Would save people who are miserable. Would save people who are depraved. Would save people who are rebellious. Would save people who are in 100% opposition to God. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But at the very same breath, those same people who get overwhelmed with joy at the thought of amazing grace, how sweet the sound, are the very ones who say, but i got to do something. i gotta do, I, I got to do some work. I've got to contribute. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to help God out. What Paul would hammer home over and over again, you are either a disciple of law, or you are a disciple of Christ. If you are a disciple of law, you are duty bound to keep and fulfill all the commandments of God. Or you're a disciple of Christ. And all there is, is faith and grace and Christ and justification and nothing that you do. Just Christ. No circumcision. No works. Christ doesn't need you to add a thing. You see, that's the heart of where Paul is now. It's this categorical contrast between law and gospel. He says, you cannot accuse me of taking my gospel from Jerusalem because I have a 100% devotion to law before and a 100% devotion to Christ now. And the only way I got that was not through my pre-conversion days, but my call to the ministry. And that's the second point. Now, the Apostle Paul brings out here in defending the fact that his gospel is not of men, but of God. He refers now to his call to ministry. Notice verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's where I want to just stop. That's the summary here of his conversion. Notice that it's 100% sovereign grace. 
Notice the emphasis on sovereign grace over and over again in verse 15. I don't understand why this happens in the English Standard Version, but was pleased. You see that there in verse 16. Really is at the very, very, very beginning of verse 15. And for some reason, for translation purposes, it's been placed in verse 16. But the text really begins, but when God was pleased. Now, notice the radical separation here going on between pre-conversion now and calling in conversion time. Verses 13 and 14, he's a persecutor. He, he's ravaging the church. He's devoted himself to Judaism. He's advancing beyond his contemporaries. He's consumed with the law. He's consumed with Judaism. And now, it's just immediate. But when? All of a sudden, it's as if in a decisive instant of time. But when? When God was pleased, he just separated him and separated him from that whole life of enslavement to law, to Judaism, and set him free and turned him to Jesus Christ. But the reason why that happened, why that, sh- that, that very radical, decisive shift took place is because God's pleasure. God's pleasure. In other words, he's referring to the electing, sovereign love of God. God was pleased. God sovereignly determined. God purposed. God chose the Apostle Paul. That's what he's saying. God was pleased to separate me. Notice what he says in verse 15. He set me apart before I was born. Using the language of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you to, a, to be a prophet to the nations. The Apostle Paul is borrowing the language and the imagery of the call of God to Jeremiah. Now, he's applying it to himself. And he's saying, before, before I was ever formed in the womb, before uh, I was even a gleam in my mother's eye, here God had already set his affections upon me. Now, I don't know how much more you could prove, I don't know what else what you could do to prove the fact that election has nothing to do with anything foreseen in you. It's 100% a sovereign selection of God. Before you were formed, before you were in your mother's womb, before you were a gleam in your mother's eye, I had already separated you. Paul didn't even know it, to be a prophet to the nations. And then finally, flowing out of that eternal selection and determination to separate the Apostle Paul, comes the call. And he says at the very end, before I was born, who called me by His grace. Here you have the historical application of the divine decree of election. The Apostle Paul is called now in the midst of uh, persecuting the church on his way to Damascus. And you know from last week he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ and in an instant he's turned unto the Lord. And in the very instant he's turned to the Lord, he's separated and called to the ministry. Well that brings us then finally to a series of applications about that. And the first application I want to bring to you this morning, people of God, is that the basis of the ministry is not anything that we do. It's not any preparation that we make. The basis of the ministry of the gospel is 100% about, first of all, God's pleasure. A number of places when the Reformed talk about the call to ministry and the office of ministry, over and over again, it's emphasized. That no one ever makes it into the ministry because they signed up 
on the checklist at the back of the church. No one is ever in the ministry because they raised their hand and said, I do. The only people who ever make it into the ministry of God's church, whether that's to the eldership, to the diaconate, to the minister of the word, to the office of teacher, is not because of their willingness, or because of their desire, or anything to do with their preparation. It is entirely, 100%, God's selection. I have to emphasize that among us here. We're even considering making a progress in forming this church that one day we will be calling someone to serve in the office of elder and of deacon and hopefully beyond that and to the minister of the word. And you have to know that the call to ministry is not anything about you or what you did. It's all about God saying before in eternity past, in his good pleasure, I'm selecting you and I'm separating you to this work. I want you to know this morning that the call to ministry is about God's pleasure, God's separation, and God's call. And he will never fail to issue that call. If he has been well pleased to separate you to the office, if God is well pleased to separate you from, your, from the mother's womb, he will unmistakably call you in time to serve him. And you can fight it, or you can flow with it. But God will take you when he wants and God will place you where he has called you to serve. God will raise you up. God will gift you. God will provide you with all that you need. And God will make you a servant in his church. And it will be 100% by God's grace and choice. That's the basis of the ministry. But also I want you to notice the sovereignty of God in salvation. What a wonderful picture we have in the Apostle Paul's call and conversion of what redemption looks like. And the thing that strikes me in this picture, again and again as I think of the Apostle Paul as the great picture of redemption, is that Paul portrays for us in his own experience what all people are apart from Christ. They hate God. They hate His church. They hate His kingdom. It's not as if, and, and we need to be continually persuaded of this in our own mind, it's not as if there is this this pool of lukewarm, sort of religiously committed and inclined people, and then there's a group of really bad people over here, and then there's the group of Christians over here. And we sort of, people who are going to make it into the church and the kingdom of God, somehow by providence, by luck, by a stroke of fate or whatever, are in this pool of sort of lukewarm, religiously inclined people who don't really hate God, are kind of open to spirituality and religious things, and somehow they just sort of move over to the category of Christian. The wonderful thing here about the example of the Apostle Paul's life is that this is what God takes to be his own. He takes people who are rebellious. He takes people who are opposed to him. He takes people who are enslaved to their idols. And he sets them free from their sin and their addictions, their enslavement to all of the, the lusts and the pleasures of the flesh. And by his grace, he moves them into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know this morning that there has never been a sinner saved who wasn't saved by 100% sovereign grace. That is the only way anybody ever enters into the kingdom of God. The picture of Paul's conversion shows us that from beginning to end, 
God has it planned out. Whenever a person enters into the kingdom of God, it's first of all because God sovereignly chose them. They are there because it's God's good pleasure. They are there because it's the purpose, the eternal counsel, the coordination, the sovereign election and separation to be a child of God. No one ever makes it into the kingdom unless God sovereignly chose them. No one ever makes it into the kingdom unless God sovereignly calls them wherever they are in the midst of life, no matter where they are, no matter what kind of sin they're in, no matter what kind of rebellion, no matter what kind of a mess they've made of their lives. Finally, the call of God comes and His people, when they hear it, turn. I don't care what your life was like. It doesn't matter what a mess you have made of yourself. When it's your turn to be called if you're elect. No matter where you are, God will bring you. There's nothing like that. You know that? You can't preach any other gospel because there isn't another gospel. What kind of a gospel would it be? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I was doing so well. <laughs> and God saw me. That's not a gospel. I, who, who could preach that? Oh, all of you who are self-righteous, who are making great progress in the law, who are religiously inclined, who want to be with God. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. Just open the door and come on in. It's where you wanted to be. No, it's not where you wanted to be. Nobody wanted to be with God. That's the whole point. That's why they're enslaved to their idols. Because they hate God. And they do whatever they can to get rid of the thought of God by making their own little trivial trinkets and idols so that they don't ever have to think about the overwhelming majesty and holiness and transcendence of God. They hate Him because they're terrified of the presence of His holiness. So they create for themselves idols and addictions and pleasure and prosperity and materialism and friends or whatever it is, they plunge themselves into them. They make these things their idols. They're not looking for God. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God, just like he did in the case of the Apostle Paul, chooses. God selects, God separates, and God calls. 100% God. 100% sovereignty. 100% grace. But the third thing I want to bring to your attention by way of application is the wonderful power of the gospel. I want you to know that the gospel has the power to change minds. Remember how we talked that Paul's deepest intellectual commitment was the reason for his rejection of Christianity and of his opposition to it and of the ravaging of the church. Paul was not persecuting on a whim. Paul was not persecuting because it was the politically correct thing to do. The Apostle Paul was not trying to do uh, one up on the next guy who was devoted to the law and says, Oh yeah, if you can drag somebody up from their house, well I can make sure they get stoned. The Apostle Paul was not, he was intellectually convinced that Christianity was subversive and blasphemous anti-God. So he was going after non-Christians. This was his worldview was that the way to God was through the law. His worldview was that there's no way that a crucified Messiah could ever save anybody from their sins. Now, do you realize how difficult it is then to bring somebody from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? They have these 
these deep intellectual commitments. It doesn't matter whether somebody is, is thoroughly aware of their intellectual opposition to Christ. At the heart of every unbeliever's rejection of the gospel is their intellectual opposition. They don't believe it. In their minds and in their hearts, they do not accept a world the way God says He made it. A redemption the way God says that He planned it. They're just opposed. That's why they don't come to church on Sunday morning. That's why they don't say, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's why they don't repent of their sins. That's why they don't long for spiritual realities. Because in their minds they reject it. There's nobody in the world that's in tune with or in lockstep with intellectually the beliefs of Christianity and just didn't know where to find the door to enter into the church and to come to Christ. They don't, they don't want the Lord. It's, it's intellectual opposition. The, the power of the gospel is that, is that God takes minds that are 100% opposed and through illumination and regeneration breaks down that opposition shows them the bankruptcy of their belief systems and draws them to the Lord. That's remarkable. I wonder, how do we bring these atheists into the church? How do we bring these people all around us who are steeped in uh, their false religions? How do we bring them into the How do we take people who are so in love with materialism and, and money and wealth and prosperity? How do we take them away from... Uh, uh, a total 100% commitment to that or to a materialistic worldview that says there's no God, that God's in a box if He exists and He has nothing to do with what goes on down here on the earth. How do you take somebody whose mind is totally committed to and devoted to that and somehow get the gospel through to their thinking so that they understand it and believe it? There's no way to do that except through the power of the Holy Spirit taking the word but the fact of the matter is what I want you to be confident in today people of God is that God does that. God changes minds. We don't have to coax people into this. We don't have to argue them into this. We don't have to beat them down into this. All we have to do is proclaim the gospel to them and pray that the Holy Spirit takes that message and the wonderful, mysterious thing happens. When God is ready, when God is pleased, He removes that opposition. He changes their minds. And then he changes their lives. That's the other thing about the power of the gospel. is not only does it change minds, but it changes lives. You see how Paul's life changes so radically. He goes from one who was savagely persecuting the church to one who was dragging Christians out of their homes. One who was breathing out murderous threats against the people of God, engaged in verbal intimidation and physical abuse, and even going so far as to see people put to death. That was his life. 100% told devotion to the law, kosher diet, Sabbath observance. Whatever it took, he was sold out. And then all of a sudden there's a, just this, a huge U-turn in the Apostle Paul's life. He says, but when? But when? All of a sudden there's this great change and transformation. He goes from a persecutor to a preacher. No one would have ever known it. No one would ever thought it. But that's the power of the gospel. It changes the mind. And then it changes the life. Whenever one is touched by the gospel, there's always not only 
the taking away of the mental opposition, but there's also the radical transformation of your life. Christianity is not just interest, simply interested in seeing you receive grace. It's not all it's about. It is about that, but now it's about turning you away from your idols, transforming you into the image of God. It's not by a work that we do. It's by the power of the gospel. God changes minds, and it changes lives. And then fourthly this morning, he calls us to service. The Apostle Paul says, verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but I went to Arabia. I went to preach. He went to Arabia, he went to Damascus, he went all the hillsides and the countrysides, and he began to preach the gospel to be a light to the nations. Now certainly Paul's call is unique in that none of us are called to be that same light to the nations. That prophetic call of Jeremiah chapter 1, that prophetic call of Isaiah 49, where the great servant of the Lord would be a light unto the nations, was peculiarly and specifically the Apostle Paul. But the broader point here is this, when God takes somebody out of their life of sin, of addictions and enslavement to idolatry and their opposition to Christ and His kingdom, and He brings them into the kingdom of God, He brings them to the Lord Jesus Christ, He justifies them, He sanctifies them, and then He sets them free to serve Him. You're called to service. When you are a Christian, you are called to serve. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are Christ's workmanship created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The same God who makes a sovereign selection of us in eternity past, who sovereignly calls us and separates us from our life of sin, is the same God who now calls us and separates us to service. And I remind you this morning, and I leave you with this, that if you are called to be a disciple, if you are called into the kingdom of the Son, if you have exercised faith and trust in the Lord, God's call to you is to not only confess His name, but to serve Him with all of your heart, with 100% devotion, to build His kingdom, to encourage His saints, to love the people of God and your families, and to be a blessing to God's people, to live for His honor and glory. Well, that's the second part of Paul's autobiographical defense of the divine origins of his Gospels. May God use his word to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our faith, and trust in his promises. Amen.